All right, good evening, good evening. All right. Good evening, good evening. Uh, man, we need some caffeine in this section over here. Uh, um, all right, we will pray and then we'll, we'll kind of jump in together. All right. Jesus, we're grateful to be together tonight. Um, Lord, we are in awe of your work and your purposes in each one of our lives. Um, the extraordinary amount of grace that you have demonstrated in our direction to continue to pursue us and to choose to be glorified that even in our weaknesses and our um, things that would disqualify us, um, Lord, you are going to be glorified in how you qualify us um, and use us in partnering with your purposes to reveal who you are um, to our hearts and to the world around us as we interact with that in a variety of ways. Um, we are aware that you are in the midst of us. Um, we know that it's your joy to be with us when we're together. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, over the course of our evening together, would you reveal the beauty of the man Jesus in a fresh way to our hearts? Would you provide the necessary grace and encouragement um, like a fresh wind in our sails in the consideration of our lives and our marriages and our families and what you're doing in the midst of all of those different conversations. Um, there's no one like you, Lord. We love you with all of our hearts. Um, do whatever you want to do over the course of our evening together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it, it is a real joy for Anna and I to be with you guys. Uh, in fact, in just a minute, we're just going to replay the video from this morning. You can turn your attention to the screen. <laughs> um, it is a real joy and a privilege to be with you guys. Uh, we were incredibly honored um, when your pastors called us and asked us if we would be willing to come and participate. Um, you know, our heart posture and our intention would be anything that we've learned along the way, right? We get it, we, we might not have journeyed the longest or the farthest, but anything that we've learned along the way that would be helpful in our lives becoming a resource to encourage or to provoke what God is doing uniquely in any one of your lives or situations or contexts as you're living that, um, then amen. Uh, we really, uh, over time, have developed a sincere love and appreciation for Dominic and Jackie. These guys are amazing. Uh, I'm sure many of you already know that. Uh, we know that it has been really precious to us to be able to interact with them in a variety of ways, not just 
um, centered on events of sorts, uh, but in other environments and conversations and places where we've been able to be together, it is a real joy. Um, and so, man, we love you guys. We honor you guys. Uh, we consider it a real privilege from the Lord to run together in this region for what God is doing. Um, with, with everything that we talked about this morning, who was here this morning? <laughs> yes, let's go. All right, so we're just going to start right where we left off. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, th this morning, our consideration would have been uh, covenant and comparison, right, in a variety of ways as that got talked out. Um, you know, as we've been considering just contributing in multiple sessions over a day, um, we, we kind of wanted to consider some very practical things in certain ways, obviously with a biblical viewpoint, or to always hold the scriptures as our framework, right? We are the people of God, right? So as the people of God, Peter's charge would be remember when you were not a people. Remember when you belonged to the world, when you acted like the world, right? First John 5.19, John would say, beloved, we know that we belong to God. But the rest of the world is caught up in the sway of the wicked one, right? So the idea is that there's a current, there's a sway, there's an influence that dominates or that disciples people who are living separated or in rebellion to God's love and leadership, right? That would be the idea, which is why even Paul's charge in Romans 12 would be don't conform to the pattern of the world. Right? We, we would just be living with willful ignorance if we decided for ourselves that the world has not launched a massive and intense discipleship agenda. The world wants to conform people to its desires, to its agendas, um, and in certain ways where applicable or where it's been able to be legalized, just as it was like Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, those who are unwilling to conform will pay the highest price. Because we can't have rebels interacting with culture when we're trying to normalize or condition culture with a hostile agenda. What we're after is discipleship, right? In Nebuchadnezzar's day, it would have been normalizing bowing. Right? It was a conditioning in culture with a massive discipleship effort, which in their day would have been with images and sounds, or images and music, if you would. Well, it's no different. right? In our day, we have the same discipleship agenda coming through the mainstream system of the world system, and the world at large is trying to bring discipleship to our lives. And so Peter says, remember when that's who you used to be. Once you were not a people, you were living in the world, you were under its influence, in some ways you didn't know any better, and you spent a long time conditioning your life to be satisfied in certain ways and to appreciate, applaud, or to have an appetite for certain things. And because it was a current, because it was a sway, it had just been normalized, it was the pattern. Now we need a massive reconfiguration because now you are a people. 
And you're not just any people, this is 1 Peter 2, you're not just any people, but now you are the people of God. Now you are a kingdom of priests, right? You're a royal priesthood. You're a people that have been purchased with the blood of God's son, living as a living testimony or a living demonstration of God's transformative power and his grace and his goodness. And your life should reveal and reflect the praises of what this king is worth, right? So now we are the people of God. And in certain ways, that means we're no longer looking to the world to find our discipleship. So when I say we're going to make the scriptures the standard, that's what I mean, right? We are investigating the Bible because the Bible speaks into every area of life and how we are to handle ourselves when life is interacting with us, whether circumstantially or relationally. The Bible is our guide. Right? We want to investigate the scriptures and love what he loves and hate what he hates. And, and, and not hatred in being prejudiced or bigoted. I'm saying holding the line and having a love for the truth and having our lives conformed and transformed by living what is true. And so this discipleship effort has to become real in our lives as the people of God, but it has to be sourced by the scriptures and the influence of the spirit. It has to be, right? Paul talks of days towards the end of the age when men will no longer have a love for the truth. They will have a hatred for the truth. They will search out for themselves teachers who are going to ear tickle satisfy their own desires, authorize their own agenda, endorse whatever corrupt or vain thing they want to live their life in the direction or in the pursuit of, Paul says that this will be one of the determiners at the end of the age. And that in those days, all the more, we will have to have a sincere love for the truth and the discipleship effort in our own lives so that we are not deceived and get caught up in the current. When the world gets into the church and the church normalizes worldliness, right? We're not trying to normalize worldliness. We're trying to hold the line. Right? We're not trying to justify being like the world. We're not trying to live in relevant ways in order to reach them. Once we were not a people, but now we are. And we are a part of the company that have been purchased with the blood of God's son. This Revelation 5, you've done it. You've purchased a people for God and you did it with your own blood. We are now a part of this great Hebrews 11 company of exiles and misfits, right? A people who realized that their primary place of belonging was no longer in the world to be a part of its ways. We're no longer ambassadors of the world's agenda. We're no longer endorsing or living as representatives of the agenda that the world and the appetites that are associated with the world. We are to be a people that are different, we are to be a people that are called out. We are to be a people that are holy. Be holy even as I am holy, right? The standard is now God himself, and we're not coming off of the standard. 
We're not coming off of the standard. I was going to say, you missed an amazing opportunity to interact and contribute there. Um, it'll go somewhat quicker, somewhat, maybe not much, but it'll go somewhat quicker if we can develop interaction. Um, but, but so we, we really have a jealousy for family. Um, not because I grew up with a picture-perfect family. Um, as a matter of fact, I am not trying to recreate anything that was a part of my experience in my upbringing. Nothing. So, so it's not like, oh, well, you care about family because you had an amazing upbringing. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's not enough. Yeah. Right? We have a jealousy for family because of who God is. And because of how God has graciously chosen to reveal himself to humans. God in himself is family. He is a divine community. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus in John 17 says, I'm in you and you're in me and I'm now in them and they are now in us. We've been invited into this joyful, radical, completely outrageous loving fellowship that is the Trinity. We've been invited in to be participants, to enjoy what is Father, Son, and Spirit in joy-filled, loving, submissive honor, this fellowship that they have. Jesus says they're now in us. Make them one even as you and I are one. So we're not contending for something that's lower level, ethnic, tribal, that, that can be uh, worldly manufactured, right? We're not just seeking commonality. We're seeking being conformed to the image of Jesus. There's a difference. We might have the same number of kids. We might love the same sports teams. We might enjoy the same food. It's not enough in order to produce the type of unity and oneness that Jesus is praying for in John 17. And the issue in prayer in John 17 is a people that would be so otherworldly, supernaturally one, even as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one, that looking at these people in community and in the mystery of marriage, like Paul says in Ephesians 5, would in ways make the Trinity believable and would also reveal that God is who he says he is because he's the only one that could actually produce a quality of relationship such as these now called out ones have been called to live. And so our jealousy is for what God says is available to those that are now a part of this family of new creatures. And I use family of new creatures because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And we are now together as a new creation, as the body of Christ, right? New creation is three aspects. It's the individual believer, our personal transformation. It's the church as a new creation. And it's the glorified body, whether being raised from the dead or alive at the time of his coming, right? So the church is a new creation. And the mystery from within this new creation is demonstrated in a variety of ways. And one of those ways is family. And again, not because it's tribal, not because it's cultural, right? Like, uh, I'm Hispanic. So it, uh, I mean, my mom's from Panama. Uh, my dad is from northern Maine, 
So there's a lot in the gene pool. Um, he's Irish and Scottish, and she's got a bunch of stuff on her side. Um, but so for that, right, it's not simply because of Latino culture that I care about family. It's not enough. Yeah. It's not a high enough call. It doesn't demonstrate enough of a powerful reality to make a connection to God as the reference point. Right? We care about family because God is family. God is a family man. And that jealousy is revealed throughout the scriptures. As a matter of fact, it's a family story. Right? There's a father who loves his son and honors him. And the spirit is at work right now throughout the nations of the world, readying the bride that the father has said the son deserves. It'll be a beautiful people from every background, every skin tone, every language. And in joy-filled assembly, those that have pledged their allegiance to this bridegroom will be the comparable companion or the suitable helper in the age to come. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that there's a day coming when you're going to rule alongside of Jesus? You're going to bring judgment to angels and nations. It is an epic love story that is a family dynamic at work where a father is headed towards a wedding to present to his son the bride that he gave his life for. It's amazing in every possible way. And so in smaller glimpses, we can catch an appreciation for what is the ultimate story in what is the minute, immediate situation of our own lives, right? And we want the ultimate consideration to bring inspiration and information to how we live in an immediate way. We want what's ultimate to inform and inspire what's immediate. And we considered some of these things this morning in the framework of how to even think about marriage and to approach it from God's perspective or from a biblical viewpoint. Um, in some of the uh, things to kind of talk through, um, where do we begin? Um, some things that, that are just kind of on our heart that, that may seem super simple, but again, putting the emphasis back on how we live day by day and how it really matters to God and how we're not playing a cover-up game where we point to a variety of other successes or ambitions that are separate from the overall quality of our family experience and the discipleship that has actually been real there. God is very interested in the discipleship of our families. Very. Um, it is a major ordeal. It is not something that is peripheral. It's not something that is secondary to our career goals or to our extracurricular activities. It's not something that takes the back burner to how well we sing or preach or these things. It is an ultimate concern because as we shared this morning, healthy family was the original vehicle that God was going to share his dominion to the furthest corners of the created order. Through healthy family, we will extend the boundaries of the garden to cultivate the creation for my tabernacling the way that I've always desired to. And we see this consistently throughout. 
right? Interestingly enough, when God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 18, right? Um, three visitors appear. Abram recognizes that there's something holy about this visitation. He wants to honor the guests and be hospitable to them, discerning in some ways that it's God himself who is visiting him. Well, Abram is the one leading the charge and interacting. Well, um, oddly enough, the three visitors in Genesis 18 begin the interaction by asking Abram, where is Sarah? But where's your wife? Is how the NASB says it. But where's your wife at? This is not just a you thing. It's a together thing. Right? It's, it's a unified front and work and effort. Um, there's a togetherness that I'm looking for. There's a unity that I'm looking for. Right? Uh, in counseling people in the place of marriage over years and years now, um, it, it's so often the experience that we normalize from within the framework of our houses where you have two ones that are parenting the same kids, they're paying the same bills, they've subscribed to the same language, visions, and goals, but they're not necessarily one. They're not unified in that. There's not a oneness that is necessarily being contended for. Um, right now, you might say, well, theologically, right, when a man leaves his wife and the, the two become one, uh, I, I get all of that. Hmm? You said wife. Oh, when a wife leaves his wife? No, 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 we don't play those games. Oh, when a man leaves his wife? No, 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 when a man leaves his family. No, 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 we're not having a man leaving his wife and clinging to another wife. That, that, that's not how it goes. Yeah, 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 no, that's not how it goes. Um, yeah, no, no. And you're definitely not leaving this session being like, oh, that was my word. Like, now I've got validation. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, Mike said it. No, no, no. No, no, that's not your Gideon fleece. That was an error in communication. Right? Like, ay, ay, ay. Which, funny enough, communication is one of the things we're going to talk through. Um, when a man leaves his family and clings to his wife and the two become one. Um, but, but so often when we are contending for that oneness and it seems as if our efforts are frustrated in a variety of ways, we normalize things that aren't actually supposed to become normal, yeah. right? And in certain cases, we find two individuals that are cohabitating and they're enjoying a lot of the benefits of marriage but they've really limited what God can actually accomplish in their marriage. And they're surrendering to an idea of being together that is far lower than what God desires for them. You find two individuals, again, that are parenting the same kids, paying the same bills, maybe involving themselves in the same activities, but yet in, in heart at times are distant from the joy that is to be known in actually being one the way that God desires. Right? And if anything, and I really sense from the Lord, I know we prayed it this morning in closing, I really sense from the Lord that like, Man, God wants to demolish all of the limitations that we have placed upon the condition of our life and or our life and experience in the place of marriage. Where some of us 
we've surrendered the dream of God for our marriage because of the way that things have been for so long. And we've normalized things that aren't actually supposed to be normal. And we're no longer contending for breakthrough in certain areas. And we've just learned how to be satisfied with the way that things have been. And God wants to demolish all of the limitations he wants to absolutely tear the, the lid off on your ability to dream and have vision and, and to, in a real dreamy and visionary way, experience what is his desires of fulfillment or the fullest measure of the quality of relationship that you can have in God together as you're journeying in this life. Um, and so just to, just to start that way. That like hope would fill our hearts again. That the grace of God is more powerful than any other resource the world has at its disposal. The grace of God is absolutely real. The work of the Spirit can transform any and every area that we open up to God. Right Now, the Spirit is a gentleman, and so is Jesus. Right, Revelation 3 says, Yea, though I stand at the door and knock. Well, you probably made the door. You made everything. But what are you knocking for? You know the best possible thing is that we would let you in. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to force myself into any space or conversation. I want to be wanted. I want to be welcomed. Right? right? I want you to be hospitable to me and open up an honored space for me to come in and to be with you and to participate. Right? The, the Lord is interested in being welcomed and people being hospitable to him. Yes. Right? All of history is going to climax with hospitality. I will not return until you sing Psalm 118 to me and welcome me the way that I want to be welcomed. That's what he says to Jerusalem. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I'm not coming back. I want to be welcomed. And not just welcomed in any way, I want to be welcomed in the way that I deserve. Right? And so the Lord is a gentleman and into hospitality, but any space that we open up to him, the grace of God is absolutely dynamic in its ability to transform even what might seem like mission impossible in our earthly considerations of how our life works. Right? Um, in a few verses later, the three visitors say to themselves, should we share with Abram what we're getting ready to do? Abram has an enormous call on his life. He's actually a man that through his life is going to bring blessing and transformation to the nations of the world or all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. Right? Enormous call. Right? It's given to him in Genesis 12. Um, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Right? He says, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a great nation, and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Right? Which is land, people, and Gentiles. Right? Well, here again, it's the reminder of the call in Genesis 18. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through what we do in Abram. But how are we going to accomplish that? Well, in verses 17, 18, and 19, it says, we're going to send him home first. That's how we're going to accomplish the call on his life to touch the world. We're going to send him home to actually 
lead his family in the knowledge of God and to disciple his family in the ways of righteousness. Because if a man can touch his house, God can use him to touch the nations. That's the idea, right? But what's real is real at home. We're not into like the superficial game where we're powerful in public and then pitiful in private, right? What's real is actually what's real at home. And the greatest appraisal of who we are is who we are in front of our family. I remember the Lord speaking to me years ago when I was uh, in my early, mid-20s, and uh, I hadn't gone anywhere to preach in a while, and I was like, Lord, like, what is going on? Like, what, what, why is, like, why is no one calling? Why are they not inviting me? Like, ah, da, 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 da. And, and the Lord spoke to me and said, when you have something to say, I'll send you somewhere to say it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> we're not obviously thinking about this the same way. You know, I had a little bit of a different idea, a different perspective that I was coming at this with. Um, and the Lord was like, the greatest platform that I've privileged you to stand on is in front of your wife and children every day. And if they can't amen your life, I'm not sending you anywhere else for others to amen you with your wife and children on the front row who can't do that too. Right, so the idea of quality of life at home is a big deal to God. How are we actually gonna fulfill the call on Abram's life? We're gonna send him home. Right, it's the same in Judges 6 with Gideon. Gideon, I am gonna use you in a real powerful way in public. I am. We're gonna rout the enemy. We're going to overturn all the adversaries in the land. The Midianites, we're going to totally crush them. It's going to be amazing. I get it. You're going to be the leading figure in what's going to be this whole move. It's going to be me, but we're going to work together. It's going to be awesome. But let me tell you where this starts, Gideon. Go home first and deal with the idols in your house. Deal with the generational bondage of idol worship. Tear down the Asherah poles. Cleanse what's going on at home because I'm not going to bypass what's happening at home just to make you some celebrity or some influential figure out in a public forum. So what's happening at home is really important. And I think at times we major in other areas and conversations and then we minor on the actual goal of developing a powerful quality of life and living with a discipleship effort that's being launched in our own house, right? A discipleship effort that's being launched in our own house, right? right? Which again, um, I shared this morning as the shepherd of my house, I'm spearheading that. I'm responsible for that. In whatever weak and broken way, and as minimal and as imperfect as it may look often, I'm responsible for that, just as it was with Abram. Two, lead my family in the knowledge of God and disciple them in ways of righteousness, right? That's coming through my efforts as the shepherd of my house and then in a unified effort with my wife in order to bring real discipleship to what is the culture of our family experience and dynamic because the world absolutely wants traction in my house. It absolutely wants traction in my house. 
And so the culture that I have is either the one that I've intentionally invested in and given time and effort and resource to create over time, or it's what I ended up with because I didn't choose to do those things. And we can play the blame game and we can lay fault and I get it that there's all types of reasons and there's all types of positions to justify, but at the end of the day, it is our responsibility to disciple our families. We're not paying a pastor to disciple my family. They can be supplemental. It can be incredibly helpful. We want the people of God. We want church's family. We want leaders who are going to model and speak into and exhort and encourage and rebuke. We want all of those things so that when my heart gets wayward and my life starts to drift, I can have accountability in place that's going to call me back to hold the line, get back in it with Jesus, and continue the discipleship work. We need all of that. However, though, at the end of the day, all of that is supplemental. And at the end of the day, the accountability, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so discipleship in our house is something that has to be on my radar. It absolutely has to be on my radar, right? Abram, go home first and lead your family well. That's where your enormous global call is going to start, right? Gideon, go home first. That's where your influence and the overturning the enemy in your generation is going to begin. Go home and actually pay attention to what's going on in your house, right? It's, it's gonna be one of our considerations, right? The altar in our house, the ark in our home even as it was as the ark went to Obed-Edom's house and rested there for a three-month period in a provoking way. Um, but God takes this very serious, right? I think some of the questions that we fail to ask at times are clear or they're evidenced in what the scriptures are communicating to us, but because we're not seeing it from the right angle, we're not necessarily asking the right questions or provoke the right way, right? Daniel chapter one is always something um, in the talk of discipleship, right, that, that comes up. And I feel like it has to because of what Daniel chapter one actually communicates to us, right? We know Psalm 78, right, that it's the privilege and the charge of one generation to share the testimony of the Lord with the next generation, Right? And in that, they won't be like the sons of Ephraim, who, though equipped for battle in the day when they had to actually fight and their faith had to cost them something, would not put their bows down and determine that it wasn't worth it. Right? Well, the contrast there is when the testimony of the Lord is shared from generation to generation, it actually equips the next generation to be willing to pay the price for their faith and the work of the gospel in their moment of having to contend for it, right? It's what Psalm 78 is actually communicating because it says when the testimony is not shared from generation to generation, though the sons of Ephraim had everything they needed, they weren't willing to pay the price to contend in their day of battle, right? So the testimony of the Lord, it, God reveals himself 
as a multi-generational God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not just the God of Abraham. He's not just the God of Isaac. But there's something even in the way that he communicates the revelation of himself that is supposed to get traction in how we handle our lives. And sharing the testimony of the Lord with the next generation is one of the ways that we bring a proper attention to God himself and discipleship in our homes. Right? And this is Psalm 78, but the connection would be Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, we get in the first couple of verses, in the third year of King Jehoiakim, right, when Nebuchadnezzar was king, by the hand of the Lord, God exiled them, handed them over to captivity, and allowed them to be led away into Babylon to become prisoners, exiles, slaves. They were war-torn if you want to call it that. They were conquered by another people group. Their names were changed, no more going to the temple, no more public reading of scripture. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of them couldn't even speak their own native language anymore. But yet we have the introduction of a teenager who is thriving in God in the most hostile scenario. In the most hostile situation, we have the introduction of this young man by the name of Daniel, who for the next 80 years evidenced in his story over the course of his life in the book of Daniel, isn't just surviving, but he's thriving. He is thriving. He's a man of prayer and intercession, right? Daniel was an intercessor. He wasn't like a public minister. He wasn't like some political figure alone. Uh, yes, I get it. He worked alongside of five different kings, but he was an intercessor. His whole life was shaped and influenced around three times a day in the place of prayer. And yet, even when tested and pressed, he was willing to go to jail for the sake of his conviction to not derail what was his devotion to God. Yes. Who discipled this guy? Where in the world did he come from? Where did he come from? Whose house produces a teenager that is willing to thrive in God in seeming a scenario that would bring even the best of us to the brink? Where did he come from? Whose house was he raised in? What were the details of his upbringing? Well, we don't have those things, but it is a unique consideration and should provoke our hearts to create an environment where the responsibility of family and the discipleship efforts in our own homes could lead to the production of those who just like Daniel, where we see teenagers thriving in God, not bowing to the cultural norms, not surrendering their devotion and their faith, conviction to live in consecration, even when pressure and penalty and trial and jail time and even the loss of their own lives. What teenager do you know? I'm not saying they're not out there. They absolutely are. I'm trying to raise some myself. I'm not saying they're not out there, but the idea of a discipleship effort in our own homes 
that are going to influence our own lives and then model something before our children that is going to help to develop them to where they have a faith of their own that they're willing to actually pay a price for. Right? My goal in parenting my kids is not thinking that shepherding them well is by protecting them from the cost of the gospel. That's not actually shepherding them well. Right? I, I can preserve them for a season, but that cost is going to be required somewhere along the journey of their life. Because the Lord knows what he's worth. And the cost is the cost. And the call is the call. And he is going to get that yes from those that love him and that have pledged their allegiance to him. And the earlier that we can begin to ingrain and develop and condition our kids that he is worth it, no matter the cost. Well, this was Daniel. Man, your homeland is conquered by another country. In fact, they're the most wicked, perverse, and hostile people group on the face of the earth. The most wicked, corrupt, hostile, perverse people on the face of the earth have now conquered you as a people. They've taken you to be their slaves. You're now exiled, which is a form of judgment. You're now living in captivity. Your name has been changed. You're learning another language. You're existing in another culture, but you're actually thriving in God's purposes. And you're influencing a corrupt culture rather than thinking bowing to it out of self-preservation is going to be the way. Who modeled this for them? It had to start somewhere, yeah. right? It had to start somewhere. And so the idea of discipleship and discipleship at home couldn't possibly only be a Tuesday night initiative or a Sunday morning experience, right? Two hours on a Sunday or two to three hours on a Tuesday night is never going to be enough in order to bring the proper discipleship to our lives and our family that are going to create a quality of witness that are going to be able to not just endure and survive, but that are going to be able to thrive and give off a powerful witness as a living demonstration. It's never going to be enough to do that, right? We have to. Get aligned with God and begin to get traction in discipleship in an ongoing way, day to day in our homes. Yes. Right? Well, I don't really know what to do. Do something. Right? Doing something is better than just forfeiting the responsibility altogether. Yeah. Man, 10 to 20 minutes a day can revolutionize a family experience. Yeah. Now, I have to have my own walk with the Lord. Anna has to have her own walk with the Lord, but then together as a family experience, we are creating a culture in our home. And so I've got little kids. If you think we're having two hour soaking sessions with a four year old and a two year old, um, you have, you've just got a little bit of a different idea as to what it looks like right now. I promise you it is not looking like that right now. Um, but we are intentional about what we are doing day to day because we recognize the responsibility is ours, right? I may be grateful for a variety of other pastoral influences, but I'm not paying a children's pastor to disciple my kids. I am a children's pastor. I became a children's pastor when I had children. 
right? right? Like right, right now, I, I'm growing into the phase of having a small youth group. Uh, you know, it's real. I, I've got a children's church. I've got a small youth group. Right now, we only have two kids in our youth group. But praise God, like it's growing. We've got others that are along the way. Um, but I'm a kid's pastor. I'm a youth pastor. Because the responsibility of bringing that discipleship in the context of my home belongs to me. I'm not too busy for that. And if I am too busy for that, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. If I'm too busy, I'm too busy. Right? And again, it doesn't have to be some picture perfect model. Right? But we're training our kids and creating a culture in our family where the word and worship and prayer are important. Yeah. Right? The word, man, it, whatever. Like sharing the word with our kids, reading Bible verses together, reading through a chapter. Now I get it. Again, I've got small kids. It's a circus sometimes. Right? They're all over the place. They're wrestling. Man, like this one's taking his clothes off. That one's doing this. I'm like, oh, this service just got wild, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it really, like even when we began, like because again, we saw it lived out in other couples. And so it's like, okay, yeah. this is possible. We see the fruit of your children. So let's look at them and let's model it. Well, that seemed really cool until we started. And I was like, this is a train wreck. Like this... <laughs> is not perfect, we would leave more frustrated than like, wait, did we really just pray? Did we really just read the word? Like, is that what happened? Because I'm really frustrated. But over time, I promise you, you give yourself to it, like Mike is even saying, like 15, 20 minutes, like whatever it looks like, give yourself to it. We all have to start somewhere. Like, again, like Daniel had to come from somewhere. So it's never too late, even. Like, even if some of you have teenagers, if you have older children, it's like, well, I missed it. No, you didn't miss it. Like, start now. Like, God can do anything in a moment of just surrendering to his design and his way. So just to throw that in there. Yeah, he can redeem the time. Right, right? I remember when we had three under five and we'd sit down for family devotions. All right, like family devotions, praise God. Like we're serious about this and y'all are gonna be serious about it too. They're making faces at each other, they're laughing. It'd be like, um, I'd ask my daughter, like, uh, who did God ask to build the ark? She'd be like, Josiah farted. <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, I, we'd be so mad. We would be so mad. Lord, we're trying so hard, and it's not working. Like, it's not working. Like, it's not actually happening, right? Like, I just want to send them to bed. Like, I don't even want to do it anymore. Like, but, but we just, we kept with it, right? It, it's kind of like grandma's recipe, right? Like, don't mess with grandma's recipe, because it works. You just got to stick to the recipe, right? Don't, don't try to tweak things along the way based off of how you may think it looks or, you know, what you think needs to be modified in certain ways, right? Like we're too immediately conditioned for the sake of reward, right? Like, like we're too immediately concerned with always having to have an immediate return or reward on our investment, and certain things in God just aren't necessarily always that way, right? There's seed, time, and harvest, right? God said it would be a principle that would endure until the end of the age. It's seed, time, 
and harvest. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times we bow out during the time portion. Yeah. Right? We, we sow seed, but because we get frustrated during the time. Yeah. Right? But, but there is harvest. At least that's what Paul said in Galatians. Right? To those who weary not in well-doing. Like there's a harvest. Yeah. You just have to remain diligent. Like the writer of Hebrews says, you're in need of endurance, right? Or of perseverance. You just have to stay the course, right? right? It's the, uh, the, the unending journey in the same direction of obedience, right? Like until the end of our life, we're headed in the same direction, right? It's the, the singular eye. It's the life journey of discipleship. It's to love him and obey him. We're committed to the call and we're headed that way for the rest of our life. Well, it's the life journey, right? But in the consideration of like discipleship in the home, um, Daniel had to come from somewhere yeah. and so do we. Uh, and I, th I think at times we don't major on how major a simple effort can be over time, right? It's incremental steps and changes over long periods of time, right? It's little or minor modifications, right? They say you don't turn the Titanic in a day, right? Similar thing. We may have invested a lot of time into what has now become the cultural norms of our house and family life, you're not just going to, out of a radical zeal, overnight, transform everything in your house. <laughs> it's not enough, right? There's got to be a commitment to the call over a long period of time where you're willing to live and model something with conviction, right? When Anna and I first got married, um, I remember, for instance, let's use the aspect of fasting, I remember the Lord was really in the early days of our marriage speaking to me about fasting. Um, I had no idea what was even going on. I didn't even know how to fast. I just said, Lord, if you'll, if you'll show me the way, if you'll teach me, like, well, we'll just keep practicing, right? If anything, I want to perfect practice, right? Like, we're just going to keep practicing. Uh, some miserable experiences, some amazing experiences, but just kept on. And I remember in the beginning days, I would always ask Anna, like, do you want to do this with me? And it was like, no. Nah. Like, like, praise God for you. Like, you give yourself to what the Lord is asking you to do. That's amazing for you. Um, and I remember, in certain ways, kind of being offended. Like, like, I wanted to do this together, but also realizing that I didn't want her to do it just for me. Right? And so, my posture had to become, rather than trying to interact with her and confront her or um, maneuver her into what I wanted her to do. I was like, Lord, at some point, you're going to have to speak to her about these things because if she's not gonna do it for you, um, I don't want her to do it just for me. Thinking like, oh, well now I've gotta do this because my husband asked me to. Like, okay, great. Well, well that was seven years yeah. of being married with me fasting and praying in what I would consider to be often cooking for my wife, serving in the house in a variety of ways with zero interest from her in joining me. Well, well, the point that I'm trying to make is I had to be willing to live a certain conviction and to become a culture inside of the culture of my house. 
right? Where I modeled something out of conviction that I couldn't necessarily force anyone else to conform to, but out of living a conviction, I could intercede on behalf of God's purposes for my family and my house, believing that through my life example, God would be able to produce breakthrough with his voice and desires becoming real in the hearts of those that were surrounding me every day. Right? Where I'm willing to live a certain way and model a certain thing without necessarily bringing the, the, the clamps down on everyone else, right? Like, no, you're going to do this. Like, you're going to live this way. This is what we're about. This is going to become the culture of our house. Sure, as long as you're around, right? As long as you're around, right? It, it, because that's the motivation in whatever way, uh, whether out of uh, fear of punishment or penalty or fear alone, like that's the motivation. But when it's something that's sincere, it has to be rooted in God, right? And so I contended over a long period of time to live something and model something. And then over time, God used the example of my life yeah. in a way to really invite her. Um, I don't know if you want to share some of that. Yeah, a lot of, it wasn't just a complete rebellion, like, no, I don't want to fast. But it was more of just, again, an insecurity and a fear of, I had never seen a woman model this before to me. And so it's, it was easy to identify, like, that's what you're doing. That's what you're going to do. You're, you know, like, and so this, like, you know, becoming a mom, nursing, being pregnant, like all these things. I was in that phase of life. So it was like, I'm just, I'm not entertaining that because it's an impossibility. Almost like Sarah, like you have, you know, Sarah standing there of like, I just even wonder like if Abraham would have continued to model something and live something like if Sarah's heart would have not been willing to like surrender to Hagar or give him over to Hagar, you know, because it's like the promise, like, eh, I don't know if the promise is going to be able to happen. But like, I wonder like if Abraham would have been like, continue to live something to where it was like that could even like enter into the place, you know, like that doubt, that fear, like those types of things. So it was so much of me just living in that place of where finally I, I was watching him and I just came to a place where I was like, I'm watching what God is doing in him. I, I'm watching how he's changing and transforming him. And yet I know I'm wrestling with certain things on the inside of me that I just, in my own power, and my own strength, I can't change like on my own. And so finally it was like a place of just surrendering. Like I need your help. Like I've watched you walk this. Like I need you to walk with me in this. And God so beautifully did. But it did have to be a discipline before it became a design and a delight and something that I even desire for myself. So sometimes you need those that are actually going to model something and help you live it in the moment as well. Yeah, because our desire has been to like contend for certain things together, right? Yes, we have our unique walks with the Lord, but now we're contending for oneness and really like the full measure of what's available in God in the place of our covenant together. And so, um, you know, talking with certain couples just over years, um, you know, the idea of like praying together, like reading the word together, like doing certain things that in a certain place in your journey you would consider to be 
a non-negotiable because you understand how influential they've become to your relationship and the quality of life that you have together, right? In some cases, these things are intimidating to some. Like the idea of praying together, like man, like studying the scriptures or reading the word together, like contending for a place of devotion together, not just, yeah, your unique walk and my unique walk, and then just like, you know, kind of integrating into life together and being involved in the same areas or activities, but really contending for something together in God. And so the idea of like fasting, praying, like in the word, worship, all of these things together was something that we had to learn how to do. But I didn't have this as an experience or in my upbringing. We had to learn how to actually begin and just start somewhere in the place of, okay, as awkward, as weird, as much as we don't feel like we know what we're doing, like we're just going to begin, right? We're just going to begin, like, man, either reading a book of the Bible together or committing a certain time to, to pray together and to pray through certain things together. And hey, now we're even fasting together, right? And God has really done something beautiful over time where now the culture that we've created between us is now what is the influence of our discipleship efforts in our home with our kids, right? Like, like we're not calling our kids to a way of life that we are not modeling in front of them, right? Like the life that we're calling them to is the life that we've cultivated and the culture that we're trying to condition them with is what we've contended for over time. Where now they're actually uh, experiencing something in a way of life in God that we've had to pay an awkward and at times difficult price in order to attain. Yeah. Right? Uh, for instance, um, over the last several years, uh, our kids fast and pray with us. Um, uh, I remember it was two years ago, and my 11-year-old um, was sitting with me. We were actually on a fast together, and she asked me, she was like, Dad, when did you do your first 40-day fast? Because she was on a 40, my 11-year-old. She was doing 20 days sunup to sundown and 20 days Daniel. Um, so during the day, she was drinking smoothies and soups and, you know, whatever. And then at night, she was eating, and then she did 20 days Daniel to, to make a 40-day experience. And she's like, Dad, when did you do your first 40? And I was like, oh, kiddo, like, I, I was not raised the same way that you are. You know, like, uh, I was actually 27, about to turn 28, and mom was pregnant with you. It was the summer before you were born, mom was pregnant with you, uh, July 26th to September 3rd, uh, the year of 2009, was the first time that dad actually did one. And she was like, really? She was like, 27? And I was like, hey, listen, again, like, like you're being raised a little different than how I was being raised. Like, we need some humility in the experience, right? Um, you know, but, but by the age of 11, had already done two or three 40s. And it's like, like, Lord, who are they? You know what I mean? Like, like what is going on here? You know, but we started involving them and inviting them to pray and ask God for what they were supposed to do if they were to participate with us. And every fast that comes up, we do the same thing. We invite them in as a family dynamic and as a family experience. And we give them time 
to hear from God on their own. Uh, and I remember the first time that my son came back, he was like seven or eight years old. And he's like, Dad, I feel like I'm supposed to do five days liquids. I was terrified as a dad. Like, I was like, okay, hold on, bro. <laughs> like, like, I asked you to hear from God. You've now come back and said something that is very troubling and confrontational to me. Like, I wanted you to do something much easier than that. Like, but this is what the Lord has said to you. I've got a decision to make, right? Am I going to shepherd you into what's easier and preserve you from the cost of the call? Or am I going to partner with God and help in his effort to actually reach you and get traction in your heart with his leadership? Okay. All right. Like, let's go. I remember it was the afternoon of day two or three, and Anna had taken the girls to SeaWorld. My son didn't want to go because the girls were doing a different style of fast. He was the only one that felt like he heard liquids from the Lord. He didn't want to go and watch his sisters eat at the theme park. So he was like, Dad, I don't want to go. Yo, sometimes you just got to keep it real. I can't be around it. Like, what's best for me is that I keep myself at the house. Like, I'm going to stay here with Dad. Dad did liquids with him because I was all in with him. And I remember he came running into my office and tears bursting from his eyes. And I was like, buddy, what's the matter? And he's like, Dad, this is really hard. Like, I'm super hungry. I died on the inside. Everything in me wanted to say, listen, bro, three days is enough. Like, bro, like, you've done it. Like, you've done so much, bro. Like, this is an amazing effort. Like, you've done your best. Look, I'll take you somewhere right now. Like, we can go eat. Like, bro, let me, I'm telling you, like, my heart was wrecked, right? And if I'm just an earthly father, then how much greater, right, is his concern over our lives and the effort that we're giving to partner with him and his leadership and the things that he calls us to, right? Like sometimes we need a radical reorientation of who we think God is as father. Because if in my own imperfect experience as an earthly father, I felt this way, man, then like what does the father see when he looks over us in all of our efforts and endeavors, right? To do things that please him in the place of obedience. Um, and I was like, okay, bro. My heart is smashed. And the Lord was like, you have to make a decision right now as to the type of father that you're going to be. Don't protect him from the cost of what I'm asking him for. Don't protect him from the cost of what I'm asking him for. Real discipleship is bringing him to the place where you are partnering with my leadership and his purposes to bring him to the place where he realizes that I'm worth what I'm asking him for. Yeah. Well, Lord, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to do that. That is going to crush me as a dad watching my son suffer to give you the yes that you've asked him for. This is where Daniel's come from. Yeah. Where does Daniel come from as a teenager? Realizing that God is worth it. That he doesn't have to bow to the cultural norms. That he doesn't have to subject himself to all the peer pressures and even the thought of losing his own life in compromising his convictions. Yeah. 
Like, this is where Daniel's come from. He's worth it, right? And so our discipleship efforts, even from within the framework of our own homes, in the knowledge of God, is that God is who he is, and he's worth what he asks for. And he's asked us to walk with him a certain way. Right? My teenager is experiencing peer pressures in a Christian school because she's realizing that even in a supposed Christian environment, not everyone is Christian the same way. Not everyone walks this thing out the same way. Right? There's a lot of gray areas. Not everything is black and white for folks. Convictions are different. And people consider experiences differently, even though we all subscribe to the same I love Jesus language. And so my teenager is dealing with um, surrounding pressures where people are allowed to watch certain things or listen to certain things or they talk in certain ways or they have certain interests that she just doesn't share in. And that's not to say that she's like some ideal, right? She's, she's a growing girl who is a teen, but she has an actual rooted walk in God like her alarm goes off in the morning and she gets up and reads her Bible and prays she joins us in fasted efforts she's a dreamer she's a worshiper now again this is the same little girl that years ago was like Josiah farted dead and I didn't even know if she was actually saved these little rebels you know (laughs) These little heathens that God put in my house. Oh my gosh. Now we keep laboring the point of like the values of the home because like just even like wanting to protect our children from this world, like that's a real natural desire. Like I want to protect them from this tainted, sinful, like filled world that we live in. But the reality is I have to believe that what God has given us to live by, what he's asked us to actually value, like back in when he asked us, like spend 30 minutes sitting and praying and worshiping with your family. Like it would have been so easy to bow out back then when it was like, this is not working out the way we thought it would. But yet now we're seeing the fruit of what we've actually labored for and we don't have to save them from the world because he's already their savior. He know, they know who's they, who they come from and they know who they're going back to be with. So we don't have to save them from this culture. They actually get to be Daniels who are actually now influencing others in their Christian school that they're in and wherever else the Lord takes them, like wherever he has them. So that's why we continue to labor these points of the values of the home. And even though they seem really small and maybe insignificant because we haven't done a good enough job at valuing them, they're so valuable and we don't have to protect them. The Lord is going to do his part. And that can go for our marriages. That could go for, like it can go anywhere. Yeah. We have certain non-negotiables that our life is kind of framed by. Um, And our kids, they understand what are the non-negotiables or the fundamentals, right? We would call them the values of the house. Um, It's the way that the Lord has asked us to walk with him and the things that we're gonna prioritize that we're not gonna be willing to compromise even when other attractive things want to eclipse what we've considered to be the priority things. Now, Now this also means that we're gonna have to pay a price in order to prioritize certain things. And that has to be tested. 
and it's something that has to be cultured over time. And so my kids understand that any other thing that infringes on what we've determined are the priority things doesn't actually make it. Because there are certain things in our walk and in the experience of our family that we consider to be convictions. And convictions are only convictions when they're proved by testing. Right? Otherwise, they're communicated, but they've never actually been tested, so you don't know if they're convictions or conveniences. Right? And things that are conveniences are things that are easily prioritized in a variety of ways, depending on other things that seem to be more immediate or advantageous or beneficial to whatever circumstance or situation we can justify. Right? But we've got certain things from within our house that are just non-negotiables. Um, like we're, we're going to, as a family, prioritize God, our family, and the people of God. Which means we make room over the course of our week in an intentional way to involve our life with the people of God in a variety of ways. Whether that be time in prayer whether that be time in gatherings, whether that be time in shared life, whether that be time sharing meals. Um, I think it's almost every day that my kids ask, who's coming over for dinner tonight? And if we're like, nobody's coming over, they're like, then are we going somewhere? I'm like, no, we're not going anywhere. And it's like, why? And it's like, guys, there are times when we need time just together, us as a family unit also. Right? But there are certain values that have shaped their life to where now, um, if I could say it this way, um, your jealousies create appetites in your children. Yeah. Right? The things that you've chosen to give your life to create appetites in your children. They awaken certain appetites and desires. Right? Um, my eight-year-old wants to be a worship leader. She wants to sing with mom. Uh, right now she leads prayer sets because we have a prayer room. Um, so she leads prayer sets right now with Anna. Um, I, I have a, a picture of at nine months old, Emma sitting next to Anna who's practicing the keyboard, singing songs and Emma's just there making sounds, right? Well now fast forward eight years and Emma is seated in the prayer room leading worship sets with mom. Because mom has modeled something that has awakened a desire in her. Right? My son wants to travel the world and preach the gospel. He also wants to be a NASCAR racer. We're going to somehow work those two things out. <laughs> but he wants to do that not because of some movie Right? Not because of uh, some cartoon or because of, you know, even exchange with his friends. He wants to do that because there's something that's been modeled in the house. Right? And I'm just using examples. Right? Like a conviction of the word of God. Yeah. Spending time daily in the word. Your children need to see you in the word. Yeah. It's important Prioritize the scriptures in a family experience. Prioritize praying together, as frustrating as it may be at times, right? In some way, leading a time of lifting our voices to God and once again having our hearts refreshed in us 
committing our lives to him. Lord, we're yours. And together as a family, here we are again. At the close of another day, we pray together as a family every evening. Um, every evening, uh, right, I, I don't want to exaggerate the point, every evening that we're able to, which is most evenings. Right? I don't want to make it sound like it's some automatic thing. Um, every evening that we're able to. Sometimes it's five, ten minutes. Other times it's a little longer than that. But it's, Lord, here we are again. We're yours. You're the king of our lives. You're worth us living our lives for you. You don't know how hearing that simple prayer over 10 years, 15 years, impacts someone's heart and life. Where in the remembrance of how we were raised, man, I remember we used to gather as a family. And even when I didn't understand what was going on, mom or dad would pray. And they would say, Jesus is king. You deserve a people. We're that people. We want to honor you with our life, Lord. Give us grace for that. You don't know how influential over time our simple efforts can be in order to develop something of real substance and power that will develop gratitude later on in life, right? We were expressing gratitude, right? Um, obviously, over time, things have to develop, right? But over time is where the reward is found. Right? And so in the idea of what to do from within the framework of our house, start making priorities and convictions. Yeah. Communicate them as a family. Right? This is what our family is about. We're not budging on these things. We're not budging on them. This sounds so simple, but in a world that is being tossed and incentivized with every sort of satisfaction and derailing allegiance to God and devotion to God with all of these immediate incentives and rewards, consistency in conviction is a rarity. Right? Consistency in conviction. Hold the line. Develop values in the house and prioritize your convictions. Model that in front of your kids and watch God work over time in order to develop, yes, you and your spouse in a real way, but also develop uh, little Daniels, right? As I would consider them or as I would call them, right? Even in their teenage years, thriving dreamers, prophesying, living with powerful conviction, influencing a corrupt culture towards the purposes of God and being willing to lose their own life for the sake of honoring him as king. Man, I want that. Well, I want that first off in my own heart. Like I want that to be real, right? It's not just like, oh Lord, do that in my kids. But like, I don't know about all that for me. Like, no, no, I want that to be real in me. And then I also want that to be real in my children, right? And these are some of the things in an ongoing way. They can't just be suggested, they have to be communicated, right? They can't be assumed. They have to be communicated, right? And so that starts with obviously Anna and I and our communication, like who are we really and what are we, what are we about? Like, like what are our priorities? Because if we just get caught up in the swirl, then our priorities are just going to be all over the place and it's going to be just bouncing around from thing to thing and it'll be easy to justify whatever seems to be the most beneficial. Well, beneficial in what way? 
right? Like beneficial monetarily, right? Beneficially in opportunities or relational or social connections and interactions or beneficial in the long journey of obedience and family discipleship, right? Well, we're going to have to choose to go without some things in order to invest in what God says is the ultimate or the main thing, right? And, and I don't want this to sound just super basic, like go all in with God from within the context of your own home. But it's so important. And the vast majority are not emphasizing this the way that we should be. That's not some critical statement, right? I'm just saying in conversations with believers over long periods of time all around the world now, the idea of discipleship being at work from within the framework of my own house a relationally unified effort to bring discipleship to our own lives and then to bring discipleship in an ongoing way to our kids and to prioritize that with great conviction and to be willing to pay a price for that is not just an automatic thing. And in some cases, it's either because we just don't know what to do, right? And so we just forfeit in some ways the journey or we just don't, we don't know. Right? We, we just don't know. Um, well, begin. Start. But like, that's where we start. We start by starting. I, I know that's super profound, right? Like, that's, that's like really deep. Like, we start by starting. And we actually start. And then we stay the course. And we pay the price over long periods of time to see seed time and harvest at work from within our house. And we deal with the actual culture or the condition of our home together as a husband and wife. Whether we have kids in that or not, especially if we have kids in that, we deal with the culture of our house, not in a legalistic way, but out of love. Because that's the idea, right? My kids understand we walk with the Lord the way that we walk with him because he's asked us to love him this way. It changes everything. Don't watch certain things. Why? Because I'm asking you if you'll love me this way. Will you turn away from that and turn to me? Don't listen to certain things. Why? Because I'm asking you, will you love me this way? I'm worth it. Will you fast and pray a certain way? Why? Will you love me this way? Right? Through the lens of love, it revolutionizes everything, and it's no longer legalism. It's all anchored in real relationship. And they're actually walking with a real God that they can relate to in a personal way because they're offering him attention and affection, and their appetites are being conditioned in sacrificial love to give him what it is that he's asking for. Right? We want this. And so like Gideon, we have to deal with the culture of our house. Like where are we with God in our home? It has to be a real conversation between husband and wife. Where are we with God? Where does God's leadership get traction in our house? Is it only in language? Or is it practically being demonstrated? He's king here. 
Now, there's no universal application for that, right? Things can be wrong for you that are right for others, but they're wrong for you because we're accountable to the intimate, personal voice of the Spirit, right? And God's going to lead us in ways at times that are not just black and white, meaning communicated efforts through the Word, right? The Lord is going to test our love for Him. He's going to test our love for Him. He wants to be chosen, in the midst of a multitude of other choices, right? Choice is one of the ways that we demonstrate love. When I said I do to my wife, I said I choose you forever. What I also said is no to every other woman that's ever gonna be alive. It's my choice of her that demonstrates the love that I have for her. Well, the Lord is the same. He wants you to choose him in the midst of a multitude of other choices, in the midst of a multitude of other ways to actually live and be influenced. He wants you to choose his love and leadership as a priority, and that will be tested, even as it was in the beginning in the garden. A thousand trees just don't eat from those two. Why? I want you to choose to obey me. Right? If it were just a force, there'd be no way to actually demonstrate or display love. Right? If it was just some generic scenario where disobedience wasn't possible, there'd never be a way to actually demonstrate our choice of love and obedience. So in a multitude of other influences, leadership structures, and models of how to do life, God wants us to choose him. We're his people. Purchased with blood, transformed by his spirit. Right? I don't even think we intended to, to kind of major on these things the way that we have been. Um, I'm just believing right, that like, the Lord knows what he's doing. Um, and the reason that, that the conversation uh, is what it is. Uh, we, in some ways, wanted to talk about uh, communication and conflict resolution. <laughs> Which, obviously, we have not gotten there. Um, not to say that those things aren't important, um, but in a fundamental way, right, the things that we're suggesting from within our own homes and spheres of influence and responsibility are ultimate. God's love and leadership and a discipleship effort in our homes is a lifelong journey, right? We never graduate from discipleship, right? We never reach the point where God's influence and his grace and transforming love is no longer necessary in our lives, right? We all need the Lord's help to honor him with the life that we're living, and we need real grace for that, right? And those of us that are married and those of us that have families, you at times realize the tension or the difficulty that it is in a consistent way over long periods of time to honor the Lord that way. Right? It's not as easy as we would assume or imagine. It's tough. It requires real work. It requires being broken time and time and time again over long periods of time. Coming back to God, being confronted with his love and leadership, partnering in a prayerful place of wrestling for him to give us grace to actually partner with his leadership and his will. Like it's time and time again. 
but, but I cannot over-exaggerate the importance of starting somewhere and actually beginning to get traction with God's leadership and discipleship in our homes as a husband and wife and as a family unit, day after day, week over week, month over month, and to allow the gradual increase and growth and development that God will bring as he breathes on our weak and broken efforts that we continue to bring to him. He will make up the difference. He will fill in every gap or chasm. He will add substance. He will fulfill his purposes. The word of the Lord will prevail over time. God will be glorified even through our weak and broken efforts over time to continue in whatever way we know how to partner with his purposes in our marriages and in our families. He wants it more than we do. He wants it more than we do. Um, where, where are we at? How are we doing for time? You said midnight, right? No. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no. Midnight, no. Um, that doesn't sound appealing to me either. Uh, um, yeah, maybe just a few points on, because I do think it's important, on communication and conflict resolution. Uh, and then we can contend for something together um, and maybe call people to a place of response and come back into worship and maybe pray for people. Um, in the place of communication, uh, it will do our hearts well to know that everyone doesn't have the same communication style that we do. Right? Anna and I are radically different people when it comes to communication. Radically different. Um, I am an internal processor. Uh, many times before I've actually uh, come to the place to say something, I've already been processing it, I've been ingesting it, uh, I've been wrestling with God over certain things, sometimes for long periods of time, so that when I say what it is that I'm going to say, I'm saying what I mean, right? Uh, I'm not the kind of communicator that gets overwhelmed in a moment of emotion and just says a bunch of stuff that I don't mean. Right? That, that I have to either apologize for later um, or hope to God I can kind of take back. Right? The kind of people that just kind of blow up in the moment, like, no, we're going to talk about this, and they just unleash the wrath, you know, and, and all types of stuff just comes out in a frenzy of emotion. It, it's just, it's their makeup. It, it's, it's who they are. I am not that way, which makes it challenging in other ways, because the things that I do say, I actually mean. Right, which in some ways makes it a little tougher in the place of communication because I say those things that I've actually been processing and things that I actually mean. And so it's more difficult to get them back um, because I'm not just the overwhelmed in a moment, just completely unleash it all, you know, like throw the pieces everywhere and we'll kind of figure it out in an hour from now. That's not the kind of communicator or that's not the style of communication uh, that I have. Well, it's very different than Anna's style. I'm throw all the puzzle pieces out there and we'll figure it out to make it a pretty picture later. 
I'm very much, I have to externally yes. talk through like what I'm feeling because I feel just even naturally, like even spiritually, like I'm a natural feeler. So I can walk into a room and I'm like sensing and feeling a whole lot of stuff that'll cause me to just like respond. Um, so I'm very much, I need to talk it through. Um, and so we are very different. And so we've had to learn how to communicate in a greater way. In a greater way, in a healthy way. Yes. Right? Because the idea is I don't, in order for the success of our marriage and communication together, she doesn't have to become like me. Right? I need space in my own heart in order to honor the way that her makeup is. And this is incredibly important in the place of decision making and things over time that could be weighty in certain ways. Yeah. I realize she's an external processor. She needs time to process those things, to talk them through. We have to go back and forth, right? It's an ongoing experience, um, which for me, I've already been dealing with these things in a more interior way. I don't need all of that. However, though, I'm not gonna dishonor my wife because of the way that her makeup is and assume that in order for us to successfully communicate, she has to conform to my communication style or preferences, right? And so there's gotta be ways to create space to honor the Lord in our uniqueness and in our individuality, where there's not consistent friction or tension in the place of our communication because, well, if you don't do it my way, then we're not going to talk, right? Sometimes things will happen and because I'm not the in the moment kind of guy, I need time, right? Like I actually have to kind of step away from the scenario where she'd be more willing to kind of like blow the whole thing up Right? And like, oh no, we're going to talk about this. And I'm like, no, we can't talk about this. And she's like, oh no, we're going to talk about this. And I'm like, no, that's not going to be best for me. And she's like, no, but we're absolutely going to talk about this now. And I'm like, things aren't going to go well. And it's like, <laughs> right? Like, like sometimes it is right for her to honor my desire to have space to be able to process. Yeah. But other times it's absolutely right for me to make accommodation and to learn and grow in my capacity to be able to entertain different communication styles, right? Well, well, this becomes really pivotal in the place of making decisions that are important, right? Things that seem spontaneous for me to her because I all of a sudden mentioned something, I may have been processing it for six months, but because I bring it up, it seems spontaneous to her. Well, my expectation now is that she should get on board because I've already processed this. And it's what we should do, right? Like I'm ready, like I'm actually talking about it now, which means I'm ready. Like I've already made the decisions, I've handled it my way, let's get the show on the road. And she's like, whoa, 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 I've known about this for 30 seconds. Like that's not how I work. Right? So in the journey of loving well and learning and growing together, right, there's all types of opportunity to grow in the place of marriage. Right? And communication, I think in some ways we get frustrated um, because communication is a variety of things. Right? It's the things that are being said, it's the things that are being heard, and then it's all of the middle space. 
right? Which at times creates a variety of agenda, right? Sometimes the things that I say is not actually what she's hearing, right? Like, um, <laughs> right? Like, why are the women laughing? Like, because they all know. <laughs> she's like, babe, how does this look? And I'm like, yeah, it, it looks good. She's like, you think I look fat. That's what you're saying. It's like, that's not what I said. It's like, but you didn't say that it looks amazing. But I didn't say that it makes you look fat. Like, like, where is the disconnect in the communication here? Right? So if we're not aware that communication is a variety of moving pieces, right? At times I'm hearing what I'm hearing because my emotional state in the moment that I heard it. It's not actually as real as my emotions created the perspective for it to be. It's where I was in the moment when I heard what I heard. It's not actually what was said, nor was it what you intended, right? And this is why open communication about all things is so necessary in the ongoing success of a relationship. Talking it through, right? This is one of the things that's important, uh, right? Ephesians 4 says, uh, um, don't let, or in, you can be angry, just don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Right? So like, it's okay to be angry, just don't sin. Right? James 1 would say the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. It's okay to be frustrated, it's okay to be angry, just don't allow that frustration or anger to produce sin in you. Right? Don't allow the sun to go down on your wrath or on your anger, which in some ways means that what happens in a day is best if it's worked through in that day. Right? I grew up in a house where it would be normal for my parents not to talk to each other for three months, where they would just be bitter, they would hold grudges, um, something happened, and it'd now be three months before they actually reconcile. Living from within the same house, but they just normalized a condition where it was okay, if you got offended, to choose not to interact with the other person that was in the house. You realize this is not okay, right? Like this is damaging and devastating over time. Right? So I get it where it says don't let the sun go down on your anger or on your wrath. Um, the idea is what you allow to continue overnight, right? Things tend to mold and fester in the dark. Right? So things that could have just been easily handled had the right amount of honest communication taken place tend to uh, with compound interest, become things that they didn't have to become because we just don't know how to actually talk through the things that we need to actually talk about, right? And so I live with offense, sometimes in a known way, other times in a secret way because I just don't know how to actually communicate about the things that are going on in my heart. And now with compounded interest, over longer periods of time, right? It's little things that begin to break the camel's back, 
that aren't actually even about the silly little things, but it's about the compounded interest over longer periods of time, where had I just talked to you about the way that I thought you offended me six months ago, all of these other things wouldn't have gotten to me the way that they got to me, but it just continued to grow, it continued to fester, I allowed it to linger, I didn't know how to actually communicate about it, and so there was just this ongoing, continual consequence of because I lacked the communication that was necessary, it's now compounded into something that it never even had to actually become. Like, ah, oh, yes. Right? Communication is really important. Knowing our own communication style and then learning the communication style um, of our spouse or of the person that we're interacting with, with the hopes and goals of entering into a marriage experience or a covenant together. Um, talking things through. Again, that sounds so simple. Like every husband in the room has experienced this. Hey, what's wrong? Nothing. Oh, <laughs> that's odd. <laughs> I mean, had you not said that, I would have thought everything was wrong. Right? Like, nothing is wrong. Right? Like, like let's talk about it. There's nothing wrong. Right? Like this week, we were experiencing all types of just weird stuff. So Anna came up to me, I think it was yesterday, and she's like, hey, what's wrong with you? I was like, nothing's wrong. She's like, are we going to have to go outside and fight? I was like, <laughs> what? Like, it disarmed him, though. It oh, yeah. Help. It helped. I was not ready for that. I was like... No, we're not going outside. Like, we're not taking it to the yard. Like, what are you talking about? You know, but, but, I, th but I think at times, like, like we do have this, this stir that's happening beneath the surface. Yeah. And it's real. Like, we're feeling things. We're going through things. Uh, and at times, for the sake of not knowing how to have a conversation that could in some ways be perceived as confrontational, yeah. right? Especially when it is going to trigger or it's going to be in the area of one of my spouse's insecurities. Yeah. Right, oh yeah. Like, it's difficult to know how to actually communicate well in areas or in spaces where you already know there are certain triggers that are real. And like, I can't even bring this up in a seemingly healthy way without just stuff hitting the fan, right? And, and because it's either attached to some sort of insecurity, it's attached to some sort of trauma, uh, it's attached to whatever thing that in some ways we realize that certain conversations are perceived to be off limits for the ongoing success or quality of our interaction, right? And so keeping the peace rather than fighting 
to be peacemakers. We make accommodation, which means a lack of communication about certain things that are actually really important. And we just need to learn healthy ways to talk through things, even at times when it's going to confront a perceived insecurity that may be alive in my spouse. Um, We all know these types of conversations, right? And so in some ways, um, whenever I get offended in my marriage relationship, uh, anyone who doesn't think that your spouse is never going to offend you, right, is living in a dream world. We're going to get offended. Um, Sometimes because of us, right, and things that God is working on in us, right? When I get uh, the experience of offense, I have learned over time to take it to the Lord, right? And sometimes the Lord will say, what is it that's alive in you that allowed that response to come out of you when said thing was heard or whatever the experience was? Right? A.W. Tozer would say, uh, when you poke a dead man, you don't get a response. Right? So what is it that's alive in you that brought about that particular response? Or why do you feel the way that you feel based off of what happened? Right? Sometimes it's because God wants to deal with me in a personal way. And I'm never even supposed to bring it up. Right? It's an issue between me and the Lord. And it's like, no, no, I'm allowing certain things to reveal things that I want to talk to you about, right? Which is amazing. But if I don't go to God and if I just consult with my emotions first, then I'm going to create a lot of friction or static or tension or conflict in my house without the realization that God is actually trying to deal with me about certain things, right? So I take it to the Lord. Lord, what is going on? Why did I feel the way that I felt whenever this happened? But why did that response come out of me whenever this situation began to play out the way that it did? Like, what's actually going on here? And sometimes the Lord just wants to deal with me personally. Other times, it's both sides. Other times, it's, no, what happened is wrong, and we're going to have to talk about that, but you and I are going to have to talk before you go and have that conversation. Because I'm going to have to do something in you to where you're just not emotionally charged or responding out of whatever the sting is in the moment, right? I have to pray my way out of the sting so that I can actually interact with Anna in a way that's gonna be healthy and constructive to produce what it is that God wants, right? Because you can have the right intel and know the right conversation and have it the wrong way and almost 100% of the time produce the wrong outcome. Right? Because we know the right thing and we can leverage the truth in a conversation, you can wield the truth in a way that's been corrupted. Yeah. Right? You can wield the truth in a way that's not actually demonstrating the heart of God. Right? And you can harm people with the truth rather than helping to build them up and to develop God's purposes together. So I have to go to the Lord. And sometimes the Lord is like, oh, no, 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 it is you, but it's also her. And so now I've got to pray until I get the right insight on how to have the conversation and when's the right time to have the conversation. But I just can't avoid it. Right? We're talking about longevity. Longevity. 
right? None of us are in this to be married for a couple of years. <laughs> We're talking about longevity. And in the consideration of decades, in the consideration of the rest of our life, there's going to be difficult conversations over time that are gonna be necessary to further ground us in God and to help to develop our union as a marriage in God. And the avoidance of these things and seeking to keep the peace, which means making accommodation for the lack of necessary confrontation to certain things, is not actually helping the longevity and the health. Because these things continue to fester beneath the surface. They continue to grow. They continue to gain momentum beneath the surface. And so learning healthy communication is so vital. It's so important to faithfulness over long periods of time. Um, and again, prayerfully learning how to communicate in a healthy way. Um, I don't know if you want to stop. No, I think it's good. Because I think on overall, like in healthy communication, um, if we can actually practice this, and I know he's had to be extremely patient because I grew up in a home where it was like, if we just avoid this, it can just move on, like nothing ever happened, then we're doing well. And so I would never actually confront these things. So even like we're joking, like when I said yesterday, like you want to go in the yard and fight? Like we could do this. But it was a sign of maturity for me of like we need to confront this. Like we're going to talk about this because I'm not usually that quick to just like confront or. So it's just it's beautiful because then like he was saying, like even in decision making, you know, like I know that there's a level of trust that I have built with him in our communication because he respects how I communicate. He respects how I process and all of that. So even when we're making decisions, if there is a moment where he has to, he's been making a decision, but he comes to me and he's like, this is what I feel. I can trust him to say like, okay, like, yeah, like I don't need this much time because I trust like I trust who you are and I trust that you've respected me enough to consider how I would feel in this as well. Um, so that's why open communication and healthy communication is so important on all sides of, in conflicts, but also like in decisions and in life period. Yeah, and I think like we suggested this morning, conversation about the whole or the totality of our relational experience together. Like, don't leave any area up to assumption, right? Let's talk it out. Let's see how we're actually doing, right? Again, as I joked, even in the morning session, uh, I don't have the fruit of the spirit that's mind reading, right? I need to ask questions because otherwise I don't know and I'm left up to my own assumptions as to how things are going or to what we're actually building and developing together. And this is in every area. It's in every area. Um, don't allow any area untouched. Talk through things as necessary. I'm not saying you gotta sit down every day and be like, well, how are we doing, right? But, but in an ongoing way, it should be open lines of communication in order for the success or the strength of our relationship. Right, where we're talking through things and we haven't chosen the avoidance of certain things 
as a sign of success. Right, again, just because we are avoiding conflict and things don't seem to be wrong, there's not any issues currently, doesn't also or equally mean that everything is really right. Right, just because, well, well, how are you guys doing? Oh, praise God, man, like nothing's wrong. Okay, well, how much is right, though? <laughs> like, but nothing's wrong. It's like, no, no, we're not settling for nothing is wrong. Right, again, we're not forfeiting what is the full measure of what God has for us to just be subjected to, well, nothing is wrong. This is good enough. Like, hey, listen, there's no problems, there's no chaos. Like, like listen, bro, like, ease off me. Like, yo, like, things are, they're, they're okay right now because there's the absence of conflict. Success is not the absence of conflict. Right? Success at times is experienced through being willing to initiate conflict in certain ways. Not all conflict is negative. When we hear conflict, we think negative. Right? We think hostile, we think confrontation, you know, we think all of these things. Not all confrontation is negative. Right? In some ways, confrontation can be seen through a healthy frame of, hey, listen, let's you and I walk up on something and look at it together. Come with me. I'd like to show you something. Let's walk up on something and let's take a look at this. Now, as we're looking at this, can you tell me what you see? And then I'll tell you what I see. And in any ways where we might differ in the things that we're seeing, let's talk about that. Right? That's the idea of healthy confrontation. We're going to confront this, whatever said scenario is. Let's walk up and let's actually look at it together. Let's not pretend that it doesn't exist. Let's actually look at it together. And as we're looking at it together, and that's not to say that everything is easily resolved in a quick conversation, right? Certain times we're talking about deep layers embedded within our makeup that at times is going to take time to process and the application of God's grace to bring real transformation in certain areas wherever we've deemed that that's going to be something we open up to God and ask him or contend for. It's not to assume that there's overnight success stories or that a five-minute conversation because, oh, well, at least I talked about it. No, no, no. Sometimes it requires a lot more than that. But that's because we're complex. Right? We're not simple in our human makeup. We're complex. And the complexity of our makeup and then our experience over time that has conditioned us to be the way that we are. Right? Like we all are the way that we are because of our life conditioning. Now what we're not doing is making excuses for that and assuming that whoever I'm with just has to deal with me because this is how I am. No, no, the grace of God can radically transform someone, right? But at times confrontation is necessary and the initiation of healthy conflict in the areas where like we actually have to look to God and ask him for grace to transform our experience together Otherwise, we're just going to continue to frustrate our ends because both of us refuse to actually be transformed and we are actually assuming that the other person in the idea of love just has to give or put up with what it is that I'm giving them. That's not right either, right? And so in areas where the Lord leads us to have these conversations, um, you know, it's like, hey, listen, 
Um, I realize you might have grown up in a house where your dad talked to your mom that way, but you ain't talking to me that way. You know what I'm saying? Like you might have been conditioned to believe that this is normal, but this is not going to be normal here. Right? Like, like this is a healthy conversation that seems to produce conflict. Right? But it's because we are trying to radically alter things that have been normalized in our life experience and conditioning. Right? Where what's been modeled before us and what we've been discipled by has created certain norms in our lives. Right? Well, now we're contending for what God wants for us. And not just either what's been passed down to us, right? which sometimes is amazing and sometimes is not so amazing. Right? But nevertheless, it's not enough. Right? We're contending for what God has for us. And at times, the communication of these desires and then the communication in the ongoing relating to one another is so vital. It's so vital. Right? Like, I, I remember early on, I had to, I think in one times, ask Anna, like, why is it every time something happens that you don't like, like you shut down? Like you're not willing to talk, like you, you shut down sometimes for hours, sometimes for days. And it's like trying to break into Fort Knox, like to try to figure out like what's actually going on. Like if you would just tell me what happened so that we can move on, like we don't have to continue like in these days or ongoing experience where we all know that there's tension, right? Like what's wrong? Nothing. Okay. We'll just continue another day, right? Uh, what's today? Today's Saturday? Okay, so tomorrow's Sunday, right? So Sunday. So hey, babe, like, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Okay, right? We'll just journey into Monday, like, hey, babe, you know, um, over these past couple of days, like, I've been asking if you were okay because, you know, it kind of seems like something's wrong. Nothing's wrong. All right. We'll believe for Tuesday. You know, it's like... And vice versa, right? Uh, uh, like I think at times we, we've just been so conditioned to handle tension and conflict in certain ways that at times aren't always healthy in the idea of longevity in the place of marriage and relating to, to someone else um, in a way that's going to be productive according to God's purposes. Um, and that conditioning at times has to be called out. It, 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 now again, I'm not saying called out in some domineering or in some like unhealthy confrontational way. I'm saying with prayerful consideration over time, getting the heart of God and trying to be constructive in my communication and my endeavors to have tough conversations, right? So whether it's really hard conversations or silly conversations or just spontaneous conversations. Conversations matter. They matter. And we absolutely need to be aware of the way that we've been conditioned to handle conflict. We need to be aware. Like, how do I handle pressure, tension, conflict, we have to be aware of these things, right? And we have to be aware of these things in our spouse, right? So that in a healthy way, we can communicate along the journey. Does that make sense?
Praise God. <laughs> um, maybe I'll tell some knock-knock jokes before we pray for everybody <laughs> to kind of lighten the tone. Um, uh, yeah, we'll do this. Um, maybe just a, a couple more thoughts in the idea of communication. Um, where, where's my, my man at who was on the keys, the seraphim? He's the, the burning creature with heavenly melodies. <laughs> um, all I'm asking you is, bro, would you come and play something for us? <laughs> all right, the communication wasn't as direct as it needed to be. Huh? All right. Um, in a moment, we're just going to... Uh, kind of enter back into worship and really ask God to give us grace to honor him in the place of our marriages. Um, I don't know if there's anyone in the room who would maybe say, no, I don't need that. Like, I, I don't need greater grace to honor the Lord in the place of my marriage. Um, I mean, if so, then maybe you guys should have been the ones giving the talk. Um, we need that, right? Like we're journeying, we're growing. Um, we want God in a greater way. We want his purposes in our marriage in a greater way to be fulfilled. We want to flourish in God and everything that he says is available for us. And again, whether that's in the place of right now, uh, the posture of waiting and praying for my spouse, Right, which is a very real place, right? The longing to have a spouse and to have a family. Man, I want to honor God in this space that I find myself in right now. And so, Lord, would you give me greater grace to honor you in this space? Or whether that's in the experience of a marriage. Lord, I want you to break into my marriage in a greater way. Um, we want what's more. We want what's available, right? We don't want to settle for cultural or status quos. We don't want to settle for nominal Christianity or the definitions of that, whatever that may mean. We want fullness. We want the dream of God to flourish. We want to take the lid off and we want to believe that as wild, as crazy, exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask, think, or imagine that God has unleashed power to those that believe in order to produce this consequence. So Lord, in my places of normalizing things or settling, I need you to help me to actually begin to dream again for my marriage. I need you to help me to actually cause your dream to come alive on the inside of me again, where I can see beyond what at times might feel like the captivity of the moment, where you can actually create that point out in the distance, out on the horizon, where the sun would begin to shine and the radiance of God and his dream for us as a couple would once again 
begin to bubble up and to flourish in our hearts and in the way that we see one another. Where we wouldn't see one another and limit one another according to the history of what has been our experience, but where we would understand that though the outward man seems to be the same, God can transform the inner man day by day by day by day. Paul would say, though the outward man perish, the inner man is being renewed day by day by day. But where I wouldn't hold my spouse hostage to their history, but where I would actually leave room for the grace of God to hope and to dream and to believe that God's grace can transform anyone and anything. Right, at times, we've experienced something so much that we freeze frame and we now hold our spouse hostage to what might have been their history. And we don't leave any room, even when God legitimately wants to break in to do a new thing, so to speak. Right, and it's difficult in the experience of a new thing because we're so familiar with what's been the history. Right? And though we want it to be real, it's like, oh, I gotta wait a little bit because I don't know if this is actually like authentically happening or not. Right? But let's, let's give room. Let's create space. Let's really contend tonight in the place of prayer and worship and looking to God and giving the Lord our attention. And even as I said in the beginning, being hospitable to God and his purposes in the place of our marriage. Lord, we're going to make room for you. We're going to open things up. That's that season right there. Um, we're going to make, I can't even say it. Uh, we're going to make room for you. Right? In whatever difficult space, right again, spaces in the great spaces we're gonna make room for you we're gonna fling the door wide open we're gonna believe again we're gonna hope in God we're gonna ask you for grace to touch us and to transform us so that we can honor you in a greater way in what is the experience of our marriage or the space in life right now where we're contending in a prayerful way for that spouse that is to come Let's do this. Let's all stand together. Because we, we would love the opportunity just to, to pray for you guys in a moment. Um, if you would be willing to do that tonight, right? To turn over our lives to the Lord in a hospitable way. To fling wide ye gates. Be lifted up, O ye everlasting doors make room for the king of glory to come in um, in whatever way maybe just just simply just the turning over of our hands or the lifting of our hands just just as as a demonstration of surrender in a practical way right it, it, it's not some secret sauce it's just a demonstration of our surrender right we're demonstrating our yieldedness to the Lord here I am opening up every space, every conversation. We're opening up the doors to be hospitable to you. Your transforming love, 
values and convictions that you desire your people to be anchored, to be rooted in. Um, Lord, here we are. Yes, individually, but then together as the people of God. And yes, we, we recognize we're exiles and misfits. And so, Lord, we're not looking to the world, but tonight we're looking to you. We're looking to you to do something in us so that what you paid for tonight, King Jesus. We open up the doors. Yea, though I stand at the door and I knock. Lord, tonight we feel you at the door knocking. Over the course of the day, we've been very aware. Lord, you're knocking at the door. You're knocking at the door of particular places in our marriage. Particular Thank you.